Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk, where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. And we are back. And I'm back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison the third in case you forgot who i was right no the whole concept of the show needs to be reintroduced basically i'm <laughs> lewis Bertel, who is the ringmaster for three weeks and now i'm back in my robin seat my second banana seat it was fun to have uh guy branham for all those weeks we had uh oh yes our friend solomon was back diablo cody was here um but now finally we can resume the real issues like what charlie puth is up to Truly, um, we've waited that first of all, that man has made us wait five months for a goddamn single that I don't even think I like that much, but we'll get into it. Uh, I do want to say that it's been it was fun just listening to the show for three weeks. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah. You, I'm shocked you listened. What, what did you learn? <laughs> of course, I had to listen. It was like I felt like, you know, um, Barbara Walters at home trying to find out if Rosie uh, and that um, blonde girl are going to fight. I can't remember her Elizabeth name. Elizabeth Hasselbeck? Yes. There we go. <laughs> that is weirdly a dead name, though. She is one of those rare people who was like every headline for every day, and now you never hear about her. You know, sort of like Ann Coulter, like just went away. Yeah. Um, you know, Ann Coulter is still in the bookstores, though. You know, right. she's a, she at least she at least has she's done what I would love um, most conservatives to do. Um, just find your book lane. You know, yeah. like, I don't want to see you. I, I don't want to see hear about your tweets. I don't want to hear about other crazy theories you have. Make your book for your fans to read, go on your book tours and stay in that bubble. Yeah, you do. You do a book jacket every two years where your arms are folded and you're scowling. And that's your whole thing. <laughs> And always a title like um, Silenced by the Liberals <laughs> or <laughs> Outright Insanity, yeah. yes, the Liberal right. Agenda. Intel intelligence Outlaw, yeah. They're always like Old uh, West adjacent badasses. Uh, and speaking of uh, Old West adjacent badasses, uh, Aida... Um, oh, right. Who is alive? I want to establish. She, she she is alive. She is done shooting Issa Rae's show. Issa Rae did let her off um, the HBO Max plantation. Okay. And um, Aida is currently dealing with uh, a family matter. So that is why she is absent. So um, she'll be back soon. I know uh, it seems like we, we had a hologram of this person once upon a time, but she was in fact real <laughs> and a speaking part of this podcast. Uh, but anyway, our boy, Charles. Oh yeah. Um, I, first of all, I want to let you know that Solomon saw both of our comments on Charlie Pooh's Instagram about his new song. Mm -hmm. And he sent me a text and he said, the way I screamed faggot when I saw <laughs> both of your comments. <laughs> 
It's also so weird to be, I guess, somewhat thirsty for Charlie Puth because he is among the definitive heterosexuals who have ever lived. I mean, let's talk about the length of the shorts alone, you know? Yeah, it's it's that and his videos ever, beyond Done For Me, that video, the other videos like Light Switch, which I hate this video, and also um, the girlfriend video, they, they are exceedingly heterosexual right no this isn't our brand at all something is like he's not even queer baiting for us no he's not he's like he's queer baiting a bit in like some of his like tiktoks and instagrams you know he'll always give us a shirtless moment or make a joke about edging but it's not in the traditional sense of like when nick jonas you know was like really going for the gays you know like it's it's really really odd to be standing a man Right. Yeah, no, it's unfortunate, <laughs> honestly. It's completely off-brand for me. Also, the song, which is called Light Switch. By the way, we should establish, this just comes up on Keep It All the Time. We don't know why we're huge fans of this man, other than he's sort of a combination of Hall & Oates and Carly Rae Jepsen, which is our interest. So, actually, it does make sense, mm-hmm. ultimately. This song, Light Switch, it just sounds like a- another track off that album from three years ago. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Girlfriend, which came out, what, last year, year and a half ago or something? I think that's one of his best songs. So I was hoping for something at that level, on that caliber. But um, mm-hmm. if you, I need more. Uh, I, I, I described what he puts out as his charpoothery. And I need that to catch on because Puth Fairies did not catch on. And I tried launching that. It was a soft launch, but I tried. Uh, Slate did a podcast recently about Hall & Oates, which is, you know, if you're a long Keep It listener, you know that I'm a Hall & Oates fan. Uh, and so you should go and listen to that. Um, it's on Hip Parade. But I want to say that, yeah, they, he falls into this brand of like um, artist that I really like. I don't know why I like him. I mean, part of me is part of me finds him cute, mm-hmm. and I like the little slit in his eyebrow because uh, you know I have a similar slit in my eyebrow. Uh, and, you sound you know, like I me in I'm high not. school talking about how the three ways I'm like Madonna, which is I'm a I'm a Leo. <laughs> there's a gap in my teeth, and I like popcorn. <laughs> Uh, I sound I sound down bad for Charlie. Like I am Cassie from Euphoria. I am so sorry. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, the song the song is fine. The song is fine. I don't love the bridge that much, and I don't like the video. But I'm glad he's back. Yeah. I'm glad all the Charlies are back because also another pop star um, who's been annoying me as of late by delaying her music is Charlie XCX. Who's uh-huh. releasing her new single with Rina Sawayama this week? So, the Charlies are it's it's a char, it's a Charlie era. Oh God, what other what other Charlie should come back next? Brown, come on, where, where's the Charles Schultz hive? <laughs> Do we have time for a good man anymore? No, exactly. There are no good men. See, West M. <laughs> Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, and unfortunately, we're getting into that too. Yes. Uh, before before we do start the show, you talked. You did talk a bit last week about the new Scream movie. But oh, you right. You glossed over it. Yes, my and... my co-host had not seen it, and I did not want to spoil too much of the movie for people who had not seen it yet. But now, fuck them. It's been weeks. <laughs> it's been two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we won't spoil that much for everyone. But I do want to. You know, chat with a Scream fan. Yeah. Um, what's your number one Scream movie? On Honestly, the first one. And I'll tell you why. 
all the things you like about the subsequent ones, I honestly believe a kernel of that is in the original. Even in like mm-hmm. in this movie, all the like talk about like sequels and requels and stuff, they really touch on this stuff in the, the in the first one. So mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a way, they've never added to the thing that makes scream amazing they've just given you more of the same which is fine like i truly thought the new one was very funny a lot of the time but come on also the everybody in the first one had such amazing personality you know like you you don't replicate matthew lillard you don't replicate rose mcgowan in that movie Mm -hmm. i would say that my fave is it's weird where i would rank one and two together just because i think scream is an iconic horror film you do it does set the pace for each of the other films and like it basically like created a whole new like revolution in horror films yeah you know and every teen in that movie became a star um but i would say that scream 2 is still maybe my personal fave and i think that also scream 2 has two of the most tense moments in the series which are which the are? moment when um Gail is being chased through um, the classroom by Ghostface, and then she sees Dewey getting stabbed. Right, that's good. Yes, in the window. Wonderful scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, in the window. Um, and I've seen it. And the second one is when Sydney is caught in the car with the two FBI agents, with Hallie, and they have to crawl out. Right, and uh, then they don't really explain how it's possible that the killer has run excuse me around the block to kill Haley, but uh (laughs) like he's a sprinter what happened and by the way that was laurie metcalf it's so confusing yes also last point screen two have you read the original script i know that there are versions where there are four killers or something i've i've read some of the more but i've not read it So it's wild because it's like when you try to piece together like points in that movie and what's supposed to be happening, um, Hallie and Mickey were the killers. Okay. And they were dating. And you can see Mickey doesn't really have a personality in the film because they cut out so much of it. He's just like creepy. And it's like, of course, he's the killer. Mm -hmm. But there's there's like a scene where they interact in the beginning where it's like they are they are together. And they sort of bonded the way that, like, the killers in Scream 5, you know, bond um, because they sort of, like, meet on, like, message boards. Mm -hmm. And they were fostered by Laurie Metcalf, who then is revealed, who kills them. But what happens is the fourth killer is... um, and I actually really love it. Like the the thing is at the end, like they try to do the framing of Cotton Weary. Like they they didn't scream too, but... Cotton survives, kills kills Lori Metcalf, and then is like, all the shit that like Gale and Sydney put him through, he can kill them now and get away with it, because everyone's going to think it's everyone else. And so the movie ends with like, um, him and like Sydney like stabbing each other like to death, like in that theater, and then they both collapse, and then the movie's over. Jesus Christ, that's some uh, Titus Andronicus level bloodshed. I think if you do that, there is no third movie. No, no, I don't think. Well, it was Sydney being stabbed to death, which I, I think I brought this up last week. My, my problem with the fifth one was it wasn't Sydney centric enough. I believe her attitude really powers the movie and gives like a counterbalance to the obsessive pop culture minds that dominate, you know, the killing part mm. of the movie. And she's so rational. 
Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I wasn't a fan of almost any of the new personalities besides the girl. Jenny Ortega. Ye- besides the girl from Yellow Jackets, whose name was escaping me. But. I liked her, and I like Jack Quaid. And you know what? That is an example of nepotism working. <laughs> Again, I I can't rail against nepotism when I may. Jane Fonda stan and an Angelica Houston stan. So <laughs> I'm part of the problem. I'm living it right here. Uh, anyway, yes, it was slightly less Sydney Sinclair because obviously it's to set up a new trilogy with this new cast. And I hope that the movie brushes off like all of the self-referential everything that we've gotten for the past few installments and really digs into the idea of the main character being Billy Lubis's daughter and being mm-hmm. plagued by you know, thoughts and like, is she a serial killer? You know, because I think that the ending with how brutal she was with killing um, Ghostface, I would like to see that tackled in like, you know, like a psychological horror movie and like have the Scream franchise go a different route. And it, that would remind me of, did you see that USA show, The Sinner, where uh, yes. Jessica Biel like- With Jennifer that, Love the, Hewitt? Uh, oh wait, no uh, wait. That Jessica was Biel. that was the masseuse. That was the masseuse show. The client list. Sorry. Yes, right. Yeah, right. Jessica Biel, the center. Uh, yeah, uh, but, she, but she like kills somebody um, rabidly, uh, and you you basically spend this season finding out why uh, what got into her. Um, but yeah, you're right. I hope the if if there's more scream, I hope it's as funny. And I hope it's as entertaining because I do think the movie's entertaining. I just thought it's the fourth best of the movies for me. Like I would go one, two, four, five, three. Not that three mm. doesn't have its charms. I would do two slash one, um, five, three, four. Wow. Down on four. I thought four was massively like entertaining, four. but you I knew like, that the I ending like was going to be, oh, it's got to be two of these fucking kids in this room. And now it's just utterly impossible. It never would have happened that way. Also, like, as whatever personality you think, like, the kids might have lacked in Scream 5, like, except for, like, us liking Kirby and, like, Emma Roberts being, like, insane in the end, um, every sort of character in Scream 4 is forgettable. <laughs> That is what true. a wash of a cast. Yeah, though I, Hayden, <laughs> Hayden did a good job. I no did, Hayden. I didn't know yeah, Hayden, Hayden had, as Kirby. Yeah, Hayden as Kirby was yeah, iconic. Yeah, and she's alive according to Scream Five. So that's right. So yeah. the doors open in a Kim Cattrall way for her to come back. <laughs> <laughs> she's living her best life in London. That's yeah. what Kirby's doing. <laughs> we'll see texts from her being like "Miss you" or whatever. <laughs> the killer is Shay Diaz. Uh, Shay Diaz wants Too to know real. what your favorite. What's your favorite comedy concert? <laughs> anyway, we are going to. Um, discuss the memory of Andre Leon Talley uh, this week um, and a, a lot of other people who have passed. Uh, Meatloaf. Um, Louis Anderson. Yeah. Mugler. Um, literally just like the other day. Um, so we'll talk about Andre and get into all of that. And then also um, the internet is being plagued by West Elm Caleb. And being less plagued by him than the discourse surrounding him. So (laughs) we're going to get into that, too. Uh, And we have an icon with us this week. An icon in the making? Yeah. She's already an icon. Ariana DeBose from West Side Story. Future Oscar winner, or at least nominee. You went Though you told her to her face you're going to win. So now you have to double down on that. Yeah. You know what? Future Oscar winner. Okay. Ingenue Alice, stand down. Yeah. She's getting my SAG vote. All right, all right. (laughs) All right. We will be right back with more Keep It. 
You should check out the latest episode of Hysteria where Jay Smith Cameron from Succession, for some reason, decides to go and talk to Aaron Gloria Ryan instead of me. Yeah, right. I'm thinking about this and I'm offended on behalf of both of us. Plus, Aaron and Alyssa also discuss the state of the Omicron variant and everything going with the Supreme Court. New episodes of Hysteria drop every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Last Tuesday, the fashion world lost a pioneering force. Andre Leon Talley, fierce advocate for designers of color, mentor to Naomi Campbell, and inspiration for Stanley Tucci's Devil Wears Prada character, who was cast with a white actor, and we'll get into that, um, died at the age of 73. Uh I mean, like, if if you're familiar with him at all, as in have watched him speak or give an interview on America's Next Top Model as, you know, a prickly, funny judge, his personality is so distinct. And I just miss personalities that are that distinct, period, as celebrities. It feels like we don't have them anymore. But also, to me, what is just signature about him is that he reminds you that fashion is ultimately about personality. You know, it's about, Mm -hmm. I have this light shining within me, and how am I going to express it the best? And fashion allows you to do that. It's not, I'm an aloof nobody, and the clothes wear me. You know, it's ultimately about we're, we're people and Julia we're Fox? fun. Yes. <laughs> Are you talking wow. about Julia Fox? Okay, can I just, wait. Okay, I'm sorry. Now I have to derail this conversation. Why does everybody know who Julia Fox is? We don't. We okay. found out who she was in the past week. <laughs> All right. Because she takes pictures with Madonna and Kanye West, and she's dating Kanye West. Great. Oh, and I remember sorry. her. She was, fr- also, she, was, she was also in Uncut Gems, but... Who I, remembers people remind her Uncut Gems? Right, people remind me she was in Uncut Gems, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I was watching Alphaba. Okay. <laughs> wow, that was an Adina movie. You're right. And also, excuse me, an Adam Sandler movie. Um, yes. I don't remember any other women in it. It was not really a, a Bechdel-friendly film, so I'm not really up on Julia's <laughs> contributions to that film. Um, But yeah, so Julia Fox is a person who I had to dis- literally discover who she was within the okay. past week. Great, and great. That, you had to do that is reassuring. That, yes. Yes. Uh, I will also point out that, like... um. This is what Andre is talking about, though. You know, like the fashion personality driving her is um, Kanye, but also Balenciaga, but also the Kanye and Kim Kardashian divorce, um, which seems like it's being sponsored by Balenciaga. It's all crafting, you know, like it, you, you have to do the work to look behind the scenes and see what people are doing. And I think that what I loved more so than being a personality is that Andre was, he did the work, mm-hmm. you know, oh, he yeah. did so much fucking work. His writing alone on fashion in the early days was fantastic. And his style and tastes, you know, and just like opinions were like impeccable, or even if you didn't agree with them, they were so fucking funny. Like he was a force. And it's unfortunate actually that um, the memoir that people remember of his the most is now um, from the Chiffon Trenches, um, rather than ALT, his original memoir, which you should track down. I don't know if it's still in print, Um, but that one is more hopeful, and then it's sad when you read Chiffon Trenches and realize just sort of like what his life became. And I made like the flippant joke about Stanley Tucci uh, in the be- when I intro this. And listen, w- we fucking love Stanley Tucci. Well, we're human house, beings, you know, of course, and, we, yes. and we love him in Devil Wears Prada. But when you think about how he 
Andre Leon Talley was essentially just used up by the fashion industry and sort of like died um, sort of like alone and sort of like broker than his um, colleagues wasn't even making the money that his colleagues was making uh, colleagues who we don't even fucking know, by yeah. the way. Mm -hmm. He was a household name, okay? Uh, and he was not really supported by his industry. And it's just, uh, I believe Saeed Jones mentioned this on, um, it's been a minute with Sam Sanders, just the idea that um, so erased by his industry that um, the character he inspired in Devil Wears Prada isn't even black. Right, right. And this man was so iconoclastic and every way not only was he black he was like this giant not only that he was gay not only that he wore like caftans that made him seem like a mythological figure and uh mm -hmm. he he's just one of those people also who like his sensibility about the world was so not contrived like he he seemed to have been born with like mm -hmm. a sense of what is rad and what is important and what's full of shit and who matters and who deserves a lot of respect. I just, in the early days of Vogue, he was like best friends basically with Deanna Vreeland, you know, the legendary uh, Vogue editor. And even now in, in his uh, recent documentary, um, the gospel, according to Andre, he refers to her as Mrs. Vreeland. You know, there's just something about him. There's like a propriety, um, within all of the chaos and madness he brought that uh, speaks of an old world sense of class. He just is someone who they talk about how he uh, arrived in the seventies working for Warhol at interview magazine. You know, he's one, he's one of these sort of Fran Lebowitz adjacent people. And, mm -hmm. um, but he really seems like 300 years old. Like you can't tell me he wasn't there when like Carol Lombard died. He just was like, he seems like he, he could, he, he, he is so essential and so one of a kind. he, like had to have come up with the birth of entertainment period, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I discussed a bit of um, his memoir too on the show um, when it came out with um, Rebecca Carroll. And uh, I, I just remember her New York Times piece too, where, um, you know, she, I think that so much happened in the wake of that memoir and, you know, like um, his connection with Vogue is undeniable, you know, so like people really try and center Anna Wintour in this story. And like, I'm tired of hearing about her. Mm -hmm. I, you know? I, I will say watching her in the Andre Leontali documentary, she was, I don't know about funnier than I remembered, but like made some points. I, 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 I've never been like an Anna Wintour stan. She just doesn't strike me as somebody I would want to spend a lot of time with, but I, you mm -hmm. could see why Andre would give her the time of day in this film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you know, it's 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 so interesting because it uh, it um reminds me uh how um I guess just the image of like a white woman in fashion and the media will can sort of like be a propelling force. Um when I think about Andre Leon Talley discussing in his memoir that he was obsessed with Jackie Kennedy um, by watching the inauguration of JFK. He said, I created my fantasy world through Jackie Kennedy. A hefty diet of fashion glossies and fashion supplements taught me everything I needed to know, you know? And, um, you know, he was written about in Hilton Alls' um, book, 
White Girls, um, an essay book, which is also absolutely fantastic. Um, and it reminds me of um, The Devil Finds Work, James Baldwin's media book, where he talks about like Joan Crawford um, and, you know, um, Betty Davis, you know, and, um, you know, like following like his white school teacher around, you know, and it's just this idea of this glamorous woman, like an Anna Wintour, like a white woman's visage that, you know, like these luminaries sort of started obsessing over and then found their way through society um and you know that that makes me think about this essay in the cut by kathy horan which you know mm. uh she talks about her time with andre leon talley but there is a part in the essay where she's like um to reduce him to you know like his size and like the fact that he was one of the first black people to do this thing at vogue you know he was so much more than that he's etc i'm like girl shut up that is the point you yeah. know because the fact that he was that and then there are no other people coming in behind him that are like him that is the point you know like everyone in his industry who worked around him seemed to ignore the fact that he was trying to push open doors for people and they were closing them behind him and so we should remember you know him for um his size for his color you know for what what he represented to other people who joined the fashion industry um because they saw him right also i mean he's associated obviously with vogue the magazine but he really like epitomize what the song Vogue is about, which is to identify mm. the fun in like glamorous old Hollywood and then sort of reinvent yourself in the idea of their sophistication and to, you know, like kind of swan about the world and and own it and 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 live in that um finesse and verve. Uh, you know, uh, it, it, you brought up before um, how he ended up alone. And there is this note of regret in his voice when he talks about, I think he even says it's like a failure in his life that he has never experienced love. And it's weird because there is always a version of a gay guy we see who is fabulous and has it all together and then maybe is missing this other component. And I feel like he's also mm -hmm. important in that way too. Like in order to move about that space, he did have to sacrifice the ability to learn how to have like a serious relationship. Not that that's essential to everybody. I'm speaking for myself. I certainly mm -hmm. have never had one, but it's, it, it's a kind of personality. I feel like we either don't think about enough or I don't know. It's just on my mind. It's just like, that's, that's, that's a part of the picture. You know, also when you're in these elite spaces, you know, like, you know, um, you are usually running across people who don't look like you. And so like when you're also trying to find sort of a love and self-worth, it can be hard to do that if there aren't um, positive you know, images of yourself to reflect upon you. Yeah, and you right. also just feel like, you know, you could feel like you were an outsider in this group and you're like, oh, these people love you. They adore your work. They love your fashion, you know, but do any of them think of you, you know, as like someone they would want to date or sleep with, et cetera, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think you have to find that in yourself um, to realize that, you know, like, um, the me go all goes back to the media, right? You know, I think we've talked before, you know, like there's been changes somewhat in like women's fashion. But when you look at like men's fashion and like gay culture and gay media and gay magazines, you know, there's still, you know, this sort of proliferation of the exact same image of like a gay man who we're all attracted to. Uh -huh. And I think once you realize that that isn't the case and, you know, like, um, 
every single person is attracted to random and wildly different things. Uh, I think that that opens up a different just avenue for you to love yourself and to be loved by others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, he's exceptional. And there was a, I believe, a New York Times piece just going through like quotes of his. I mean, scream out loud funny. Again, it's just when when people just have that sense of humor about the world. There is a famine of fashion is my favorite. Just yeah, yeah. The the exasperation, like the the uh, sophisticated exasperation with everything, is so typical of him mm-hmm. and and thrilling. And I and I do want to lastly point out too that like I really want to reiterate the work because right now there exists a lot of people who can be described as personalities, mm-hmm. but they're not putting in the work that Andrew Leon Talley was putting in. Right? You know, like he was also like working as an editor, working in fashion, like actually doing his job really fucking well. That's why he became a household name. That's why he was respected by so many fashion icons. And there's so many people that want the personality side of that without, you know, having the um, resume to back it up. Totally. Um, And also, by the way, he was just like overflowing with information. Like part of his personality, it isn't just that he was being funny. It's that he was almost like convulsing with knowledge about fashion, about like old designers, new designers, like who he missed, who 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 is exciting. You know, he's like I think like a lot of the famous people in fashion, namely someone like a Dionne of Reland. He just didn't want to be fucking bored. You know, it's just like just like his life was propelled by. What is interesting? God, who is having a good time? Who is awesome? Can you just be awesome? You know, like, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, I have one demand, just be awesome at whatever you do. He seemed to tap into, you know, the fun of being a person and wanted everybody else to bring it to. You know, is, is that so much to ask, you know? And I think we should take that into all forms of media, you know? I feel like, you know, like, not to make this about us, right? But that's mm-hmm. what we do here. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you focus on, you know, like the the fact that this podcast is called keep it right and it's like we're talking about like the things that we don't like at the end of the episode but it's also because we spend the entire rest of it you know talking about things we do love we champion things that you love uh hopefully we champion things that we love hopefully and i feel like he is a model to follow for that talk about what you love talk about the artists that you miss the movies that you know like that you grew up loving the ones that you want to see again the ones that you wish people were so inspired by and yes point out the stuff that isn't fun that is derivative that is frankly unuseful i think something that specifically uh queer people do a lot in regards to pop culture is they're kind of like pop culture custodians, which is they, Mm -hmm. they, they pick their favorites. They have their, you know, their icons and they, they want to direct your attention to them and say, this is what's important. And and like, don't Mm -hmm. really look over there. We've already seen enough of whatever that other thing is. You must check Mm -hmm. this thing out, you know, curators and not just curators. We run the museum too. You know, like you want to know our opinion. So uh, yeah, he's just like a a giant in exactly that way of opinion and of taste. Um, yeah, so, um, lastly, I would really just recommend, uh, tracking down ALT, uh, and also reading, um, a fantastic, um, piece on, um, Andre Leon Talley by Hilton Alt, which I believe is, um, now available digitally as well. Uh, 
Should we talk about any of the 500 other people who have died this week? I just want to say, by the way, that th- this has happened in such rapid succession. And I hate being one of those Internet people who's like, it always happens in threes or whatever. But guys, I am still stuck on Sidney Poitier. We did not have enough moment for that. I'm sorry. Is there a second Sidney Poitier I don't know about? No, because there was only one and he's dead. <laughs> uh, you know, and in your discussion, you didn't get to mention... Um, one of my favorite movies, Paris, oh, Paris Blues. Blues. Yes, right. Him and Diane Carroll and Paul Newman and Joette Woodward. It's just, it's, it's such a beautiful film, and it's also a film where um, you can see the mechanics of what it was supposed to be, and that Paul Newman and Diane Carroll were supposed to get together, and he and um, Joanne Woodward were supposed to get together, but the censors at the time were like, absolutely not. Right. No, no interracial film in Paris for me. we'll devote some other time in future episodes to talk about louis anderson oh yes i mean underrated family feud host yes yes underrated family feud host definitely and also a show we don't talk about anymore his animated fox show life with louis Louis oh my god so funny yeah back to back with bobby's world was that was that was my syndication Saturday. The, right. Uh, no, the mom on Bobby's world to me is the definitive Minnesota accent. And I'm so sorry to Francis McDormand. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, but anyway, uh, no, life with, uh, again, uh, another one of those people like Andre Leontelli, there is no second one of Louis Anderson. You know, there's like mm-hmm. that particular drone, that particular like take, the like, uh, he was both. No one else is going to replicate that voice. Okay. No, right. And here I am trying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, very sad. And apparently he was so wonderful to work with people on baskets he was so i saw uh uh an inter, a tidbit about somebody who said they interviewed him for baskets and he could not stop talking about how impressed he was with the rest of the cast it was actually frustrating to interview him about his own emmy winning contributions to the show so mm-hmm. yeah uh and he apparently had a podcast that uh i never listened to i want to go back and listen to it because uh you know um a friend of our pod skylar aston um was um sharing a signed copy of louis book um on instagram where it was like Louis had signed it to him um, saying, like, come on the podcast, please, you know, and like Skylar said, he'd never gotten to, but they were, they'd become friends who texted each other. Uh, and um, just Louis was just a wonderful person, sort of in that Betty White way, right? You know, mm-hmm. where it's like um, everyone who encountered him um, found him kind and very generous. And I want to point out kind and generous because. I hate when people try to refer to celebrities like that as nice. Like, I don't want to get into the Sondheim thing. The Sondheim thing um, from, like, Into the Woods where the witch says, like, you're not good, you're not kind, you're just nice. Mm -hmm. Niceness is overrated and it's useless. A lot of people in the industry can be nice, but, like, the kind and generous people like a Betty White or Louis Anderson, like, you still love them because they have a wit about them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not trying to be nice to everybody. They can be funny and they can be withering with a great fucking joke. You know, I right. think you could still treat people wonderfully while also not being completely neutered. Yes. Good. Yes. Andre Leon Talley rules. Stay, stay yeah. exciting. Yes. <laughs> okay. Stay exciting. You can be a bitch. Right. Please. Uh, My God. You know, to quote that Naomi Campbell interview, I hope I'm remembered as a bitch. <laughs> But a good bitch, a kind, generous bitch. <laughs> Which sounds basically like Sondheim lyrics. So, yeah. Uh, all right. When we're back, we are joined by the one and only Ariana DeBose.
Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is an old school triple threat, a dancer, an actress, and singer. And let me tell you, I'm just going to call her an icon, a legend. She is the moment. You are the moment. (laughs) She really is the moment. (laughs) Ariana DeBose. Hello. Ariana DeBose, you are the moment. That is so kind. And I'm so (laughs) grateful. Thank you for those lovely words. Um, it is definitely whatever I'm living is definitely a moment. It feels quite large and grand, and I don't know, lovely. I'm just trying to have fun, <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts. You know. <laughs> I'm grateful. I, I'm grateful to hear what sounds like peace in your voice because you're still very fresh from hosting SNL. Which I, even if you enjoyed hosting an SNL, I just feel like the experience must be. I don't know how else to put it. Traumatizing. The amount you have to do in a week. <laughs> So how are you feeling coming immediately off that? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I had to, I couldn't do anything for two days. I needed two, 48 mm-hmm. solid hours to just be in my house, sit in my bed, and process. Um, what they do is very special. It takes a special group of individuals to do that. Um, I have the utmost respect for each and every one of the individuals working in that building, in that studio. Um, it's hard. You come in and they're like, cool, cool, cool. Here's 40 scripts. We're going to read all of them. And then then they're like, great, let's narrow it down. And then, cool, cool. You, you start at 6 a.m. and you're going to wrap at 2 in the morning. And then you're going to come back and do it all again. It is the <laughs> wildest experience. But I got to tell you, it was really fun. And maybe that makes me an adrenaline junkie. But I really had a blast. And I credit that to the, the cast and the crew and the talent team there, like they made me feel so at home. And um, if I felt stupid or didn't understand the comedy, they were like, no, no, it's good. It's good. It's just this. And the writers were <laughs> all lovely and helped me play to my strengths. And 
I don't know, we had a good time. I feel like if there's any particular sort of artist who is like just sort of like equipped to do that though, you know, you would think like theater actors, mm -hmm. you know, you are constantly on your feet yes. doing something, like you do eight shows a week, yep. you know? So if, even if it's not new, you know, you are constantly used to like changing and, yeah. you know, like um, sort of like adapting with what goes on. Oh, totally. I mean, I can tell you when they said, okay, you're going to have a ton of quick changes. I was like, okay, define quick. They're like six minutes. I was like, that is not quick, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, I think you're totally right. Um, you know, having a, a theater background or Broadway experience, I'm telling you, that kind of training, if you can do that, you really can do anything because you you're you're changing, you're fixing in real time. It's I've had some of the dumbest things happen to me and I've done some of the dumbest things on the Broadway stage that I had to fix or own up to. Like because there's no hiding. You just gotta do it. Um and so it it forces you to be bold. And if you can find the joy in the boldness, then it typically ends up, you know, going pretty well. And, you know, I do think you're also right that I think, I think theater actors probably make really good hosts for a show like that. Um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm the most recent theater actor to do it. Um, maybe they should get some more of those. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It's an idea. Brilliant idea. <laughs> do you have any mistakes you've made in a Broadway show that still haunts you? That you're, you're still like, I can't, I, I had to make up for it in some way and you probably ended up doing it very well, but you, I don't know, you, you perhaps almost derailed an entire show just by doing what you have to do. Oh, um, I don't know if I've ever derailed an entire show, <laughs> but, um, I'd be rad if you did. I've definitely, Lewis sounds like Ben Brantley now. Oh, my, right. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm scared of Ben. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I feel like there've been moments where I've forgotten my lyrics and, you know, trying to be the consummate professional, I have just, you know, said watermelon. Like, I don't know <laughs> if you know, that's actually a trick. When you forget your lyrics, there's like this old story. Well, just like mouth the word watermelon and it'll look like you know exactly what you're doing. And, the, you know, <laughs> potentially the sound just went out, um, which might be kind of rude to put it on the sound guy. <laughs> in the moment <laughs> but um until you can like you know the words can come back to your spirit and you know you pick up your soul off the floor to continue going it's definitely a helpful remedy um and i did when i was doing pippin i did fall over an elephant stand and very publicly you know go ass over tea kettle <laughs> in, on stage <laughs> like, so that was really, really fun um but it didn't derail the show so <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, well, we've talked about the stress of SNL, but literally, how do you feel knowing that um, in a few weeks you'll have an Oscar? In <laughs> well, um, I I don't know that. Uh, I I can tell you. Listen, if you don't get it, we're we're taking up arms, so you will have an Oscar <laughs> in your home I, or an point. uprising. I, yeah, right. Okay. I, love I don't know who it is. This is this this passion <laughs> is so beautiful and lovely. Um, it sounds like a canned answer, but I promise you it's, it's not. Getting this far was the gift. You know, like I, there was an article recently that came out, Cindy Tolan, uh, the casting director for Westside, uh, did an interview with Variety. And she talked about many things in the casting process, but 
you know, she, she says, she's like, I had to ask Ariana to come in four times. And I was like, did she? I like blocked that part out, I guess. But the reality of the situation was I, I was starring on Broadway at the time. And I, I take every job I do very seriously. And so I was very devoted to keeping that show going. And we were dealing with a lot, dealing with a lot of injuries and, and I needed to be constant. So I wasn't I, auditioning for a while. And then all of a sudden she called and was like, can you come in 10 a.m. the next day? And then the story goes, as most people know it. I went in and I was like, yes, I'll sing and I'll dance, but I would really love to not read for you. So today that's a no. The reality of the situation is she's right. I didn't see myself ever getting this job, ever, because for a couple of reasons. To be frank, I wasn't seeing that Hollywood was in the habit of giving someone who was quote unquote a no name a chance. Mm -hmm. And while I, you know, had some some traction on Broadway, I was doing work I loved and still very proud of all the work I've done. I didn't see that there was actually a real opportunity for me to get a role like this with someone like Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner, even though the role was 100% in my wheelhouse. I just didn't think it was going to be a thing because that's not what we've been doing. And so it was a really big lesson for me and a reminder, let them make their own decisions. It's not my job to decide for them. It's my job to go in and give be the best that I can be and offer, offer a good perspective or a different perspective on a character. Um, because for that, like what, however long you're in there, you're doing a job. That's how I look mm -hmm. at it as an actor, but I never in a million years thought it was going to work out. So this project has taught me to get out of my own way, to just say yes and to go on the ride. And the fact that I got to make the movie, the fact that I've, you know, not for nothing, I was honored with a Golden Globe. I'm, I, I know there's a lot surrounding that, but it's not every day you, you get a trophy <laughs> for something you did. Um, and I'm really proud to have gotten this far because if I can get this far, maybe that means more artists of color will be welcomed to the table and celebrated for the work and that they're doing and the contributions to the entertainment community that they make. What's interesting to me is like, obviously you're more of a newcomer to film than Steven Spielberg yeah. is, but you obviously have way more experience with musicals than he did. So I was wondering if in interacting with him on the set, there were ways in which you had to teach him things or you or like you, you were, the, you, you know, felt like he, he, he was new in a way. Well, I wouldn't say that I taught him much, but um, <laughs> could you imagine like, well, I taught him everything he knows about making you <laughs> look dummy. Yeah. Look now. You get a whole chapter in his memoir. <laughs> well, Ariana taught me things. Um, you know, he gave me the honor of, letting me collaborate with him. He was incredibly collaborative and he always asked for our, not just mine, our opinions on what we were doing. Um, and so in a way, you know, we sort of, we taught each other, we learned from each other. He taught me how a movie supposed to be made. <laughs> and there were moments where he was like, you know, what do you love in a, in a musical sequence? Right. And I got to share with him the things that stand out to me and what makes musical excellence. And, you know, I remember sitting at, uh, we were filming Dance at the Gym and we were just sitting in Video Village and we were talking about transitions. Like, how do you transition from beat to beat creatively and successfully that drives the thought forward? It's like, 
those are creative conversations that I love having. Just like that, that stuff makes me tick. So, and I got, and he let me do that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard such great things just about, you know, like I'm friends with Ricky Ubeda, um, who's, you know, fantastic in that He's film. So good. Um, and uh, it's just, I, I wonder about shooting as dancers and as like a troupe on mm -hmm. film versus like theater. Like, what, were there any like little differences you notice? I wonder like each time you do the scene too, you know, like you can call it cut during like a scene, et cetera. But right. like with Steven more like, let me get the entire performance each time or something. Like, what did you notice in like little differences? Um, I mean, it was very rare that he called cut at the, in the middle of something he would genuinely mm -hmm. let it play out unless it just really didn't go well um <laughs> a benevolent cut is what i call that um when you when you almost derailed west side story when right, I, yes exactly. I, famously. I, honestly, famously ruined the movie um which actually when i first saw the film i felt like i had ruined the movie and i was like oh no i'm so sorry um really yeah i did i thought i had ruined the movie um but anyways, that's for another moment. Um, you know, what was cool about the, the process of making West Side was that it was like being at theater camp, you know, like mm -hmm. we, we created, or they, Justin and Steven and Justin Peck, the choreographer, um, and Tony, everyone created an environment where we just were at theater camp and we would take dance class together and warm up every day and do exercises and we play in the same space and uh, try different things out. Um, so in a sense, the communal aspect of making theater is exactly what we employed in order to make West Side Story for the screen. Um, the only difference was that you're on location, you're shooting in the streets of New York, you know, you, you have an audience of, you know, the world, <laughs> potentially whoever's walking down the street might be watching you um, while you're you're doing what you're doing. But the only difference is you're just playing to a different audience. You know what I mean? Like my audience is in a little black box called the camera. That's it. And once you understand, for me, once I understood that, that there were different ways to tell the story and that I don't have to hit the back of the house. I just need to let the camera see me. It's going to see you, but if you can just relax and really let it see you, that's magic. Now, I have to get back to that thing you said about how you thought you ruined the movie. And by that, I, my comment about that is uh, one of my favorite musicals is Victor Victoria. Uh -huh. And there's an actress in that, Leslie Ann Warren, who was nominated for a Supporting Actress Oscar. And when she originally saw her performance, she thought she ruined the movie. I did. She's like, my, she actually thought her career was over, uh -huh. is her quote. Me too. So what, so... <laughs> Meaning what? So what? What? What is it in watching your performance that you reacted negatively to? Oh, I just thought I was like maybe my timing's off. I don't think I'm funny. I don't know if there was enough joy. I was like, was that the best dance take that that I gave them? Like, I was very very hard on myself. Um, I'm still very hard on myself. I I'm uncomfortable watching film. <laughs> so that's something mm -hmm. I take joy in because I I am a perfectionist of sorts and I'm just like oh my gosh I could have made why didn't I try this differently you know hindsight's 2020 um I'm always someone who's looking at how to be better in service of the piece um mm -hmm. 
And, but at the end of the day, that whole thing, you know, my visceral reaction to seeing the work for the first time, what it taught me was like the greatest lesson in truly letting go. Because once you've finished the performance of a film, once you've wrapped, you're done. So then you've given it to, you know, hopefully as a director that you trust, which I trust Steven Spielberg with my creative life and my actual life. He's a very good man too. Um, <laughs> but then you're like, okay, the character is in your hands. The story is in your hands. And he gets to tell the story that he wants to tell, the story that he sees. And sometimes, sometimes actors agree with that and sometimes they don't. You know what I mean? And it's also a really interesting exercise in, in coming to understand that sometimes you, as the actor and the director, see the character differently and that can be really hard when you're inhabiting a character that you feel you know so viscerally and i'm very well acquainted with anita um so i was like <laughs> oh my god did i not do a good job that's really what the question boils down to i was very scared that i didn't do a good job um and at the end of the day honestly it doesn't matter what i think what matters is what all of you think and what you receive from the film and what what this character makes you think about that is the only well, thing I received matters. iconography. So <laughs> that's what I received. And speaking of, you know, the character of Anita, it is rare that someone who like takes on an iconic role like that is also in the same mm -hmm. film as the actress who originated that role. So um, speaking to you about, you know, saying that, you know, like hindsight might've been 2020, et cetera, for your performance. Did Rita Moreno, um, the queen mother, share anything with you about like maybe something that she in hindsight wished that she could have added to Anita that maybe then you added? Or was there something from watching West Side Story and, you know, just like, you know, the history of that film with, you know, her being, you know, basically the only Latina in the film um, was there something you wanted to bring to the film that you didn't see in the original? In chatting with Rita. <laughs> uh, we really only discussed one moment that she was like, I wish I'd done this differently. And that's the only thing mm. that she ever, ever really said in the moment. And it's a, uh, sort of talked about, but not really. I was playing a game with people seeing if they could guess what it was. Um, but ultimately, I don't know that it really matters anymore. Um, mm -hmm. But it takes place in the the, the candy store scene. In, in Docs? Docs. It's in Docs. I figured it was that yeah, scene. It's, it's that, scene is, that scene is powerful. Yes. But in, in this film, it like it lets the audience know well, and that the Jets are evil. Are evil. Well, and, <laughs> well <laughs> it's a very strong word that I definitely just repeated. But... Um, <laughs> It, uh, there's so many layers in that scene it's, it's such a complicated scene it's complicated subject matter but the, I don't know she, she, she talked about delivery with me and she had some regrets about one of the lines that she delivered and she was like play with that I think there could be value in a different delivery and what she didn't know was that not only did I agree with her but when I approach the material that was one of the things I wanted to experiment with was with a different delivery and I'm actually very while I'm uncomfortable watching that scene I am proud of what's the performance within the scene because my goal with Anita was to be able to play a character that you felt her viscerally if she was moving if mm -hmm. she wasn't moving um 
And I feel like I accomplished that in that scene. It's one of the first times I've ever really felt like an actor. I struggle with calling, letting myself identify as an actor sometimes because I think it's part of my conditioning as a dancer. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I, I'm very proud of what's in that scene. Well, speaking of being um, an actor, you have now been in, even just in your movie career, have been around some of the greats of all time. Like, not only have you worked with Steven Spielberg, I mean, like, you've worked with Meryl Streep before. Like, there's like, there's no, there's no higher you can go, unfortunately. <laughs> Do you feel you've got too much, too fast in film? And speak, did you gain something from being around all these, like, almost everybody in the prom is like one of the most experienced, not just actors, but stars yep. ever. What is the, does that experience still loom large for you? Yes, it was a fantastic, wonderful experience. Like, I don't know, I don't actually get the opportunity to speak on it often. Um, but man, oh man, am I so grateful to Ryan Murphy for saying yes to me and giving me that opportunity because he created a very um, safe environment for queer artists and straight allies alike. Uh, it was really special. And yeah, I had to hang out with Queen Meryl, <laughs> Queen Nicole, mm. and Queen Scary Washington. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And, and honestly, um, I'm, Carrie has become a real source of um, sisterhood and mentorship for me. And I'm very grateful for my relationship with her. Um, but I don't, I, be, I don't know what I'm supposed to do after all of this. Um, I'm, I can tell well, you. I know what I'd like you to do. Oh, oh. And you did an, in, you did an interview with a friend of mine, Juan Ramirez for T magazine. And, right. and when, when are we getting that sweet charity revival? Oh, oh whoa. Darling. I did not know about this. Oh, what? And I want it. I don't know who I have to yell mm -hmm. at on Broadway. I don't know what show I have to close. Start a movement. <laughs> well, no, I can't. I always have conflicted <laughs> feelings about closing a show to do something I want to do. Um, <laughs> but. Um, you know, Slave Play closed this weekend. That's so, true. You know, yeah. you know, you've got a free theater. There's a free theater. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think maybe we should just start an internet movement. I think, look, mm -hmm. I love the idea of revivals. And I've made no secret that I, I'm very interested in the material of Sweet Charity. But when I approach revivals, it is to revive them and to bring new mm -hmm. perspectives to them. And that is source material that definitely needs, in my opinion, Absolutely. some work. Um, I think there's a deeper <laughs> story there than the one that was previously explored. Um, and I think mm -hmm. there's a way to make it accessible to people today. Um, so, so if there's, you know, group of individuals who would I'm like just to this do out that, there, I'm just putting this out there that I love P Valley. And I think Katori Hall has right. brought Katori. a lot to the inner lives of dancers and sex workers. Yeah. And maybe, maybe she, maybe I need to give her a text about Sweet Charity. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a little <laughs> chat to be had. Um, you know, I, I like I like conversation. I like uh, I, I like brainstorming. Really fun. So I'm here for it. <laughs> I, I guess my last question for you is, and we talked about this with Cheyenne Jackson, who was on the show uh, a few months ago. You, of course, were Tony nominated for being in the Donna Summer musical. And he, at one point, was in an Elvis Presley jukebox musical. And a part of me wonders, now, when I go out to a club and I hear Donna Summer music, that's almost how I know I'm at the right club. Yeah. But as somebody 
who has been in this musical, do you hear Donna Summer music? And you're like, you, I have to turn that off. I simply can't hear it anymore. No, I mean, the thing about it for me is that I was never, I was never trying to impersonate her. In fact, mm-hmm. listening to her helped me find my voice. So I, I, my, when I was portraying her, my goal was to try and emulate some of her sound, but not to impersonate. So it helped me sort of separate myself from Donna. And at the end of the day, I'm playing disco Donna. She's an elevated right. version of Donna Summer, the human. Um, so it, that allowed me to still really enjoy the music. And honey, I am Donna Summersizing all the time. And like my, <laughs> my elliptical playlist starts with enough is enough because guess what? It's like 12 minutes long. Fantastic warm up. <laughs> That's like the most amped duet of all time. I Find know. a more amped duet. Hon- I, honestly, I dare somebody to, to challenge me on it. it. And those vowels. And also I'm like, people were sleeping on the technique it takes to execute those sounds from both of them. Miss Barbara and, and Lady Donna, like, Nobody did it the way they did it. Just saying. <laughs> you know what? I love nothing more than a Barbara duet. Okay. I mean, I can put on. And that is on my on bucket list. Album, I probably, whatever I want. <laughs> probably won't happen, <laughs> but that is definitely on my bucket list because, like, a girl can dream. <laughs> you know what? We love conversation. Yes, yeah. we do. Keep it, and we love brainstorming. <laughs> and um... we love these things. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! And we need that to happen too. Wishes were kittens. Mm. I love it. Well, thank you so much, uh, and congratulations on everything, truly. And you know what? Can't wait for Oscar night. Thank you. I appreciate your and good I, vibes. And, and I'm glad that either way, you will find out not via a text or a tweet. There'll be an actual ceremony. Yeah. Right. <laughs> 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 thank you guys so much for your time it was so fun chatting with you guys big fans i love what you do oh what a pleasure yeah. thanks ariana yeah. thank you <laughs> hi it's martha stewart you know i spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m at all hours of the day really What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New Miracle-Gro organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. Miracle-Gro is simply the best. Last week, Mimi Shu, a New York City jewelry designer, recorded a TikTok video documenting a familiar tale. She went on an amazing date with a tall man named Caleb, whom she never heard from again. Imagine relying on someone named Caleb. It seems stupid even at the outset, doesn't it? Go ahead. (laughs) Then the algorithm took over. Caleb got doxxed, and we have to wonder if the punishment fits the crime. So... Basically, this is the West Elm Caleb saga, for those of you who do not know. This woman from New York posted about getting ghosted by a man named Caleb after meeting on Hinge, and multiple people in the comment section were 
started replying, West Elm Caleb. And it turns out a slew of other women had a similar story with a 6'4", mustachioed furniture designer as his dating app profile reportedly described him. And according to the videos, he love-bombed them or, you know, just demonstrated a ton of affection at first, um, only to ghost them after a couple of dates. Here's where I'm going to start first with the story. <laughs> oh, we need to delineate what ghosting actually means, baby. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I saw a tweet where someone was like, wow, remember when ghosting used to be when your like, husband of eight years would just leave the house one day and never come back? And now <laughs> people are like devastated and have PTSD from never hearing from a person they went on two dates with. They spent like two out two maybe three four hours of their time with this person and you are not you are not owed them continuing to contact you for the rest of your life right 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 no it's uh I- i'm gonna go with charlie's theron sean penn rules which is you have to be dating for quite a long time <laughs> and then you simply don't respond to the two-time oscar winner you're dating Okay, you have to be Julia Roberts leaving Kiefer Sutherland at the altar, okay? Right. <laughs> that is ghosting. August Ghost Age County? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis. Well, first of all, I also just want to say from a, um, I guess, aging gay man perspective, that West Elm would be besmirched in this scenario is unacceptable for me. I when, I, <laughs> when I go to West Elm, I just want to be in the comfort of, you know, you know, teal furniture and uh, lovely lamps. And I believe West Elm Caleb, if he works there, has a real eye for design and that should be fostered and not um, shunned as he has been. Also, I got to say, I know it maybe sucks to be ghosted or maybe it sucks to get the wrong impression from somebody you went on a really good date with. You guys are banded (laughs) together to talk about how a man didn't like return your call or something. It's just... Oh, we got to find something to do. You got to go it's on another date. Yeah. Also, imagine going on a date with someone from West Elm and your main concern is them ghosting you and not the fact that it is now taking four months to get your fucking coffee table. Yeah. Oh, you know. Oh God. Okay. You, West Elm, t- can we talk can we talk about the delivery? <laughs> the, the, okay. I like I are we still talking about this um how deliveries are taking too long because of like the the, the supply chain or something, because I'm like, I think the supply chain is over. The holidays yeah. are over. No, Where uh, is my coffee table? Where is my fake-ass Eames chair? My God, I got to put my legs <laughs> up on something. <laughs> and listen, obviously, we are two gay men discussing this. And if we talk about pathologizing bad behavior um, from men that we are involved with... Um, we swing to the other side of the pendulum, you know, like we sort of expect to be ghosted. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. We're like t- prisoners. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm coming from an extreme callousness on this one. Yeah. Uh, gay dating is like being on Oz. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and not um, in a cute Chris Maloney way either. Yeah. <laughs> um, particularly the one complaint where someone said that she realized that he went on a date the same evening that she had woken up in his bed from a date the night before. And I'm like, honey, (laughs) honey, come on. You want a date with Tad Hamilton and now you want a marriage. Stop. (laughs) God, I was thinking about Tad Hamilton the other day. Oh, 
a friend of mine um, described um, the Julia Fox and Kanye West situation as like win a date with Tad Hamilton. Oh, like, there you what go. What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> win a date with Tad Hamilton. Like, you know how you know how like to like the Criterion Channel, uh, like Rashomon is their number one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. TBS on a Saturday, their number one is win a date with Ted Hamilton. You know, that that's you know, their that's their crown jewel. <laughs> and, I mean, and listen, the win a date with Ted Hamilton trailer is what introduced me to Liz Fair. Oh, right. No, that's wait, is that extraordinary? I forget what song is on that soundtrack. Yeah, or is it Why Can't uh, I? Yeah, it's Why Can't I? Oh, okay. Yeah. And that's the that, first Liz Fair song I ever heard. And then it made me go and dig into uh her repertoire. You're like, wait a minute, this woman doesn't sound like Avril Lavigne all the time. I'm so confused. I know. And and I think I uh sorry. And I love that phenomenon too of um how pop culture will introduce you to certain people in like a weird way because it's like um you completely miss the um sort of like straight men who were um loving Liz Fair for her first album uh and then sort of like derided her for this album. Um, that um, why can't I was on because like you you missed that discourse completely you know it's yeah, the same right. way like I discovered no doubt like circa um, return of Saturn and then like hey baby um, and so like I didn't get the whole like obsession people had with her brother who was a writer on The Simpsons and they were like this music was better back right. then um, no well, I I wonder all the time about people getting old songs off tiktok like you know how i brought up madonna accidentally three times already but that frozen remix is suddenly really popular on she's gonna appear in the mirror now lewis (laughs) oh no actually she's gonna appear on the podcast now with (laughs) with with julia with kanye and we're gonna have to bop along like we're on ketamine and pretending a party is really interesting <laughs> oh God! Oh God! You've said it. Truly, I can am, anything be worse am, than the fact that I she's do, hanging out with Kanye de- West? Yeah. <laughs> I want to do a I want to do a brief tour detour about this, and then we'll get back to West Elm Caleb. Is is this the most troubling thing for you as a Madonna fan? The fact that now this current iteration of her celebrity is so fucking mundane mundane is an interesting word because I, you're right we get music less frequently than we used to not that i'm obsessed with the music anymore yeah but, but it's like she thinks this is like almost shocking but it's like when you look at like that video that was circulating of like all of them hanging out like an after party it's just like this isn't a madonna i'd want to hang out with it yeah. looks boring right well also and additionally she just rarely makes sense. Like the whole thing about Madonna before was she was like kind of like uh, whip smart and uppity in a Groucho Marx way, like really get your goat kind of humor. And now mm-hmm. she just seems like, all right, here's my like huge ass in the in the camera. And like that's supposed <laughs> to be like edgy. It's like, girl, I, I am so familiar with your ass. I am so familiar with it. <laughs> Name a time I didn't know your ass. Yeah. <laughs> If Lewis is kidnapped and held at gunpoint and told, we will shoot you unless you can draw Madonna's ass from memory, he will be out of there in five seconds. Please, I would put a blindfold on me. I'm ready. Yeah. I'll do it freehand. Yeah. Uh, um, but getting back to West Elm, Caleb, I want to say that the main problem with this is 
well, one, these women doxing this man for behavior um, that is questionable, but not questionable enough where you need to like reveal where this man works and get, have him be terrorized. Yeah, it's you not know, criminal. He didn't, tweet, he didn't tweet going to the Africa West. Um, hope I don't get AIDS. You know. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't do any of that and i do of course i did do worry about like us as gay men just sort of like normalizing like people being shitty to people that they're like going on dates with or being intimate with but there has to be some kind of medium because i feel like we either go too far in the direction of like you know excusing people being shitty or you like moralize it so fucking much where it's like um oh, he's the worst person ever and we have to treat each other better. Right. Well, I, honestly, the problem with this situation is it just got too popular. Like, if it were if it were something that really maintained a small scale and, like, let's uh, stay on a text thread, for example, that would have been perfectly fine. But now it's something where, like, I saw... Um, and just like that, made a a tweet about West Elm Caleb. I've seen like billboards referencing West Elm Caleb. It's just we're starved mm. for, I guess, viral content at the moment. And these are the three words that caught on, you know, the way Demon Twink did last year among gay people. And well, and the people involved in it never seem to get the fact that uh, discussing West Elm Caleb so much is just going to help him. Right. I'm sure he's getting like laid five times as much right now. Right. If, would like there on a beautiful sate at West Elm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that sate that we're waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> I'm one of their like Navajo hammocks or whatever they sell. Yeah. Ladies, can one of you go and fuck West Elm Caleb and ask him where my coffee table is, please? Yeah, right. <laughs> please. I just want to know. I just want to know. Oh my god. Yeah. Right. I, I I don't know how to hang a lamp. They should be up here telling me. Uh, if if West Elm Caleb was conservative, he would be speaking at uh, the RNC. No, right. He, I'm sure he would be a <laughs> Madison Cawthorn calling him right up. Yeah. Uh, all right. I think we've devoted enough time to that. Yeah. Well, it better never come up again. So. I agree. It better not come up again. Like West Elm Caleb is dead, but I would be interested in you know like ikea sven oh sure oh i love an offshoot yeah a little yeah. Uh, a little omicron west on caleb yeah yeah a requel if you will <laughs> wow <laughs> <laughs> all right when we're back it's our favorite segment it's keep it and we got a lot of shit to keep this week And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's keeping. Don't think I didn't hear. You shade me the other week being like, of course, Ira would love to go first on keep it. I have gone <laughs> first maybe twice in the four years we've done this show. <laughs> How benevolent. Yes. Anyway, I'm going first. Uh, my keep it this week is hopefully momentary. But at the mm. moment, as of this taping, keep it to the Gilded Age. Did you watch it yet? Oh, I haven't. I haven't. You know, okay. it's, it seems to me like, I mean, we've already seen Bridgerton, you know, and so I'm, I'm going to watch it because it was HBO. But, you know, I'm like, 
how many colorblind cast it shows set in like the past where women were wearing, you know, like these um little gowns, you know, and you know, like the poofy hair and walking around and gossiping about society. Am I expected to watch? Right, right, right. Well, okay. I came in super optimistic. I'm actually not a Downton Abbey stand, not because it's not good. I just never really got into it. I love Michelle Dockery. I love Maggie Smith, but I just didn't watch season after season of the show anyway. So Julian Fellows, the creator of that, created The Gilded Age, which takes place, you know, at end of the 19th century. And it is a who's who of of ba- of like Broadway actors and Tony winners, really. So you've got mm. uh, Cynthia Nixon, who is, of course, on the other HBO show. And just like that. Is she being fingered on this show? <laughs> you know what? There's still time. I wouldn't put it past the show. <laughs> you've got Christine Baranski, who I have famously said is like if a tall glass of white wine went to Juilliard. You've got Carrie Coon. You've got and then in tons of guests. Oh, Audra McDonald is on this show. Um, okay, actually, now you're just convincing me to watch it. I know, but that's what I'm saying. All of these people, are, and there's like Celia Keenan-Bolger, uh, uh, Deborah Monk eventually is on this show. So th- like the Broadway names keep lining up. I don't know why they became obsessed with having only Broadway people on the show, but that's the lane they've chosen. And to me, it is just flavorless. For some reason, it just feels like a mm. bunch of people reciting lines as opposed to uh, uh, really delivering, you know, s- uh, sassy and damning line readings the way a Maggie Smith would, the way a Michelle Dockery would. And What's the plot? It is, uh, you know, the Gilded Age. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just Of like, course, of yeah. course. <laughs> Jur- 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 what, what was the plot of Jurassic Park? Oh, you know, the, the Jurassic era. <laughs> Truthfully, it was hard for me to pay a ton of attention because nobody was killing. Though I will say, Cynthia sort of recreating her Broadway role, her Tony-winning Broadway role in The, in the Little Foxes. Uh, if mm. you saw footage of that. So mm. she's giving this kind of like up-speaky performance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not delivering. We right love now, Lillian Hellman. Oh, we yeah. love Lillian Hellman, Dykes, and, you know, um, plots to steal money from family members. Yes. <laughs> and also Lillian Hellman, famous, according to Mary McCarthy, liar, which I love about her. Um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one of the most amazing feuds in history. Every, I, think the, I think the quote from Mary McCarthy is, every word out of Lillian Hellman's mouth is a lie, including a and and the. Uh, <laughs> writers used to be angry. You have to understand this. Uh, but anyway... Yeah, just underwhelm me so far. I don't know. You have to see it and come back to me. We need a good writer feud again. You know, there was a brief kerfuffle online with the um the gay sincerity um article that Gawker um posted uh where it was, you know, sort of like dragging um Ocean Vaughn's um, book uh, and like other books of that ilk just about, you know, like sad, weepy gays, you know, who like um, write poems about um, the cum dribbling on their uh, chest after <laughs> sex, you know, that kind of shit. Um, you know, I, but I, I, want, I want some real beefs. OK, you know what will have to suffice is that Taylor Swift clap back at Damon Albarn, the blur singer who in an interview with the L.I. Times guest basically that Taylor Swift either only co-writes her songs or doesn't write them at all. And she wrote back on Twitter, how dare you say this damaging thing about me? I write all of my songs. Now here's the thing. Uh, she's right to call, call them out. If she writes all of her songs, I just want to say it is always unclear to me who actually writes pop songs, even when it says on the song who wrote the song, 
You know, mm-hmm. it, it just feels like that's always kept from us. Who did the writing? Who The song transferred from one set of songwriters to another, mm-hmm. whatever. So I think Taylor Swift should simply be, I, I'm happy with her calling him out, but also please be sympathetic to the idea that I believe Wikipedia is constantly lying to us about who is writing songs. Thank you. Mm. Taylor Swift is weaponizing her fan base again. It must be Tuesday. <laughs> right. A day ending in day. The replies to any Taylor Swift clapback are truly, truly the gulag. <laughs> it's always, it's always like the same. It's always the same faggots, you know, being like, "Yes, queen, you served," or making like the worst joke you've ever seen, or like using like a gif or a meme of like a black woman that uh, whose name <laughs> they don't even know, never even watched the reality show that it's from, but they want to be sassy. It's like it's like the same fucking three gays constantly in her mentions and we know who they are i'm not going to mention them but you know who they are okay (laughs) one of them is that um gay who you know like whose face is always covered in glitter and you know writes like um healing posts about politics i just want to say i just want to say about healing posts they have not healed me one time guys i remain (laughs) lacerated you're not getting you're not (laughs) i need more balm sorry it's not working (laughs) your balloon writing it didn't save me i have to tell you that also, anyway. uh, here's the thing. I, I also want to uh, establish, again, she made a good point. But of course, of course, Taylor Swift had to say in the middle of the post, I was such a fan of yours before this. She can't just slam somebody. She has to be like, and by the way, I was an amazing person who loved you. She can't just be mean. Just be mean. Just do it. Right. Girl, you weren't listening to Blur. Uh, no, picture it. Can't, picture her listening to coffee and TV. You cannot. You cannot. Okay. Yes. Uh, G- Taylor Swift, you ain't listening to Gorillas. No, right. Uh, Not even that one song. Yeah. Welcome to the world of the plastic beach. Okay. Welcome to the world of the liar. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Welcome to the world of the plastic beach. There's something wrong with this beach. Okay. And it's you (laughs) on it telling lies because you are. I I would love to know what Taylor Swift's favorite gorilla song is. Right. No. Where is TMZ getting in her face being like, rank your favorite five favorite Blur albums? Go. I mean, I know that's like gatekeepery, whatever. Do it. If anything, she should have dragged the fact that his quote made no fucking sense. Because, well, I mean, because one, she does have the album Speak Now where she wrote every song on it to know, mm-hmm. to prove to the haters and the men that she can do that. Oh, uh, she addressed the haters? A- I can't believe it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but he was like, oh, you know, like, I prefer, you know, like a Billie Eilish. I love like, what she does with her right. brother. And mm-hmm. I'm like, so do you hate people who co-write or not, bitch? <laughs> Right. You, true. you were like, I hate Taylor Swift and her co-writing. And then literally said your fave is Billie Eilish because she co-writes great songs with Phineas. What's not clicking? Make it make sense. <laughs> okay, so they are white men stop amazing. talking. Yeah. <laughs> I want white men in the industry to stop talking because every time they talk, they give they give Taylor Swift like one of those um, one-up mushrooms from Super Mario World. Wow, yeah. And she and she took some star shit. She was invincible during this run. Okay, and she is getting bigger and bigger, <laughs> and pretty soon it will be like Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. <laughs> and do Which, we want that? I would I would watch a remake of that, honestly, but yeah. Starring Taylor Swift? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we did get that Anne Hathaway movie where she was a giant, whose name escapes me right now. Anyway, it was pretty good. It was a good movie. Yeah. It was about toxic masculinity. I'm sure right. Taylor Swift loves it. 
But <laughs> she will claim to love it. Yes. <laughs> Anne Hathaway, I was such a fan. <laughs> <laughs> then you did that I one loved, song movie. Yeah. <laughs> I loved you when I loved you when the witches so much. <laughs> <laughs> That will be how she prefaces um, a feud with Anne Hathaway if Anne Hathaway ever says something mean about her. That would be a pretty anyway, good feud. Okay, Ira, what's your keep it? Uh, my keep it goes to The Batman. Oh, uh, which is a film. Yes. Yes, a forthcoming film starring, honestly, the people I um, think about when I fall asleep at night. Zoe Kravitz, <laughs> Robert Pattinson. <laughs> Iconic cast. Yeah. Iconic cast. Uh, and the poster that they just released like shows Robert Pattinson's like brief little brief bit of stubble. And it's it turns me on so much. Oh, but wow. okay. you know what does not turn me on? The fact that this movie is reportedly going to be 167 minutes. Who the fuck? Is the director Cecil is B. Fucking for? DeMille, bitch? What? <laughs> <laughs> Who is this for? I I am so sick of these over long superhero movies. It is, it's, I call it like the Nolan effect. It's like they're all like dreary and like end with like someone like giving a speech about how like the people of the world don't know what they're doing. They hate each other. They don't have love. They all deserve to die. It's some variation of that. I just had to sit through one of those fucking movies when I finally watched No Time to Die. Mm-hmm, on the plane, right. on a on a plane, and I tell you, I it took me the entire um, six hour plane ride to finish the movie because I kept falling asleep. Oh no! And I was I mean, like, "Is this over?" And also, like that that movie is kind of like what you're talking about the superhero movies, where it's like it's aping every part of the movie is aping some other version of this we've seen before. Like they don't take yeah. it literally any new direction. That said, I don't know what the Batman's going to be, but the promo photos, it's like. It's giving Nolan, you know? Yeah, the new Beverly, I was watching uh, Batman Returns. Oh, okay. Like a screening of it. And I'm just like, I miss that era. Even the Schumacher era, you know, where like a director had something to say. They had a visual style, you know? And every one of these films that DC sort of makes um, feels very... Just, just like Nolan-esque. And it's like, it's can we get a new fucking direction? They're Nolan-esque or they're like Zack Snyder-esque. And like even, even Joss Whedon, when his Justice League movie came out, didn't feel like um like bright and popcorny, you know, like the way his Avengers movie did. Like it felt like like I guess he was finishing a movie that Snyder did, but like even that was like it's overwrought and annoying. Yeah. And since I brought up Joss Whedon. Let's oh, no. talk this about profile. how he is overwrought. He is overwrought and annoying too. This profile that happened in Vulture, baby. How did he let this happen? Truly, how did he invite them into his house to interview him? It's the interview is psychotic. Well, first of all, it's it, the quotes in the interview are are. It, they're so often so mean and so barbed. It feels like he was ambushed on the street by reporters. But no, this is a sit down. <laughs> Billy interview. on the street. Yes, right. <laughs> Name a woman you haven't abused. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, it's that level. Well, yeah. What's that actor's name? Ray Fisher. Yes, saying that like uh, he's a bad actor in, in more um, than one way. Yeah. Yeah. In terms like, of what happened gonna... him on set and in the movie. I mean, I've never heard a quote like that in my life. That's so mean. Also, I, I mean, I 
saw the Snyder cut and Ray Fisher is good at it. So it's 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 sort of like it, it feels like this interview was maybe even done before the Snyder cut came out. And like because like to be able to say that after he was already trending on Twitter um, after the Snyder cut, people talking like Ray Fisher is actually really good. We're annoyed he was cut out of Joss Whedon's version. You know, it's 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 almost as wild as what he said about Gal Gadot. When Gal Gadot said that he threatened her and threatened to ruin her career. And he said, well, you know, maybe she just doesn't speak English that well. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, I don't have anything to say to that other than. Have we seen Gal Gadot in that Death on the Nile trailer? Because, woof, guys, Murder on the Orient Express still hurts, and I don't know what we're about to do with this film. And our girl Annette Benning is trapped on that boat, and I'm worried for her. <laughs> do you know who we haven't seen in that trailer? Army Hammer, even though he is in this film. Oh, yeah, he's like the star of it, too. Yeah. Actually, that <laughs> boat has... Everybody in that movie has been canceled. It's him, Russell Brandt, it's... Letitia Wright? Oh, Letitia Wright! <laughs> <laughs> no one in this film can participate in a press junket no it's gonna be annette sitting there being like oh, whatever i guess i'll talk about warren or something yeah also this is not the podcast to do it yet but maybe kenneth Branagh needs to stop well apparently we're about to give him a best director nomination and perhaps win for belfast a movie i thought was cute but by the way let me say something about belfast it's like 90 minutes long that's what mm. i think people love Mm, okay okay you know i like i don't particularly want him to stop stop but get makes a lot of wild movies no th i'm that sorry don't need to be made you, you can't possibly be talking about cinderella <laughs> the most worthless fucking movie i've ever seen even though kate's good yeah <laughs> uh, yeah that's our bitchy show woof anyway we can't end this with also mentioning the the most surreal part of the Wheaton profile. His current wife just continuing to bring like tea and chocolates like to the room during the interview was so weird. Is she a handmaiden? But no, it, it it seems like something Lucy does to be part of the 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 show. <laughs> uh, Lucy, you can't be part of my vulture profile. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oh, God, I missed this show. <laughs> well, here it all was. I know. I'm glad it's it's good to be back. Right. We we uh, <laughs> we I think we hit every topic, too. So there's none left. We'll have to wait till next week. Well, thanks again to Ariana DeBose for joining us uh, and being so rad, as Lewis would say. My one adjective. <laughs> and You're either rad or grim. Mm, well, if you would like to be rad and not grim, you should also remember to like, rate, and subscribe to keep it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your fucking podcasts. Just, just do it, okay? Keep it tears. It's time to assemble. That's exactly right. <laughs> I don't like the name Keep It Tears. I don't know what else. Can we have like a raffle? You know how like Joan Crawford, like she won her name in a contest. Can we have that for what Keep It fans should be called? Thank you. We'll see you next week. Keep 
Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. But I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin, and the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter. Every day feels like Saturday, and French fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion, and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling, and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide, and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.